This is Roots on the Road. I'm Bernice Hembree. And I'm Brian Hembree. We have spent the last 13 years touring the country as musicians and the last 11 building Fayetteville Roots, a music nonprofit based in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Some of our favorite moments involve the thrill of being on stage or seeing an artist in concert for the first time. But for us, the most memorable experiences seem to take place offstage, chatting with musicians about their music, their lives, and what keeps them on the road. We love getting to know musicians and finding out just what makes them tick. Together we sit down with artists, either while touring the country in our Sprinter van or when they pass through Fayetteville for a show. Roots on the Road podcast explores artist-to-artist conversations about making a life in music and the humanity of being a touring musician. No topic is off limits. We invite you to listen in. this conversation with Bernice and Aaron Lee Tashjan back at 30A in January 2020. It was such a good hang. It was so natural. We just hung out, talked music, and Aaron Lee played a few songs off of an upcoming record. Well, that record is out now, and it's damn good. It's called Tashjan, Tashjan, Tashjan. Rolling Stone just put it on its top 25 country and Americana records for 2021. You owe it to yourself to go listen to. Enjoy this conversation with Aaron Lee Tashjian. Cause love is like, love is like, love is like that. Cause love is like, love is like Aaron Lee Tashjian, welcome. We're down here at 38 Songwriters Festival, and it's it's really amazing. It is unique. Uh, I think I heard over 220 different artists here performing, multiple sets across the weekend, that kind of thing. And so we appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule here to sit down and chat with us. Oh, man, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me, you guys. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, with respect to... Um, you know, what you're doing down here is obviously, uh, you know, you're here solo with us today, but paint a picture for us, uh, um, you know, about your band, you know, musically, you're more than just what you're doing. And, 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 uh, if you'd paint a picture for us with that. Sure. I, you know, I think, um, I think I, 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 I would go as far as to say in my mind, uh, I think Americana, um, kind of maybe means the same thing as rock and roll yeah. nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when you look at like the the dictionary definition of rock and roll, you know, they're talking about a mix of, you know, country music, of blues music, you know, uh, of R&B music and all these kind of different things blending together. And that's really what Americana is, you know. So I guess in, in that respect, you know, it's I feel like the title fits. Um, for what I, for what I do. Um, but you know, I don't, I, I also feel like, 
you know, genre is increasingly sort of less important um, as time has gone on. Um, and I think that what people are connecting to are, you know, the, the stories that artists have to tell, you know, and I think, you know, when I, when I look at, you know, the sort of, um, you know, uh, the, the, the torch bearers, if you will, you know, for, for the genre, you know, um, I think it's much less about the fact that Brandy Carlisle or Jason Ar Isbell or whoever would be considered an Americana artist and more about the stories, you know, that they're telling in their music and, and also about who they are personally as artists that people are really connecting with. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's kind of what I try to always remember, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell the truth, but, but also maybe, you know, do it in a way that, um, you know, I think I, I've, I've tended to handle a lot of the, um, heavier moments in my life with a sense of humor, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, I find so it important. just helps it helps me get through. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of my music is kind of like that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We, we think about that a lot because our festival is it's a roots festival yes. and people always want to know what is roots music. Yeah. And for us, it's, it's the genre thing where it's so broad right. these days and it's hard to define someone's music by saying, Oh, it's country. And, right. Oh, this is rock and roll. And what is, what does that mean? And, and so I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. For us, it's, it's your roots musically, like what make you the musician that you are today, mm. like your own roots, but the roots of American music. Yes. So yeah, we we're very aware of that that term, and we don't want to pigeonhole our our artists into a certain kind of genre. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I've heard people say, "Well, that's not folk music, or mm. that's not rock and roll, or whatever." Mm. But one time, someone said uh, about an artist that that we were presenting, "That's not roots music," and I thought, what? "That's strange," because <laughs> in my mind, roots music is music or whatever, right, you know. Sure, and, yeah. and and so I like the way you phrase that with Americana too. You know, and, and those two kind of can be interchangeable, right? But really, absolutely. just uh, you know, music made by people, yeah. and um, you know, and 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 rooted in something that's you know, um, direct, kind of one to one with the listener, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with respect to um, uh, you know uh, the genre thing. Uh, it, it seems as if uh, you have been able to do that where you are beyond genre. You know, I don't. I don't think that you know you've been labeled with any one thing. Uh, is th is that sometimes a challenge though? It's interesting. We get labeled with a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes um, you know people are kind of trying to figure out maybe where you fit in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what is interesting and compelling about some artists is that they don't fit in yeah. to anything. Yeah. Um, they, they just kind of, uh, you know, exist in, in a way that um, they have a relationship with their audience that the audience is kind of going, I wonder what they're gonna do next. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and they're excited by that. And for me, so many bands that I fell in love with as a kid and so many artists that I fell in love with as a kid, you know, whether it was Wilco or Rufus Wainwright or Elliot Smith or yeah. Richard Swift or like any of the musicians that were a big influence on me as like a songwriter, John Prine would be another one, yeah. uh, you know, like where do those people fit in, you know? And I, and I loved, and I remember identifying so much with the fact that I felt like they were making this music that was kind of not easily classifiable because as a kid in school, like I felt like that person, 
you know, I felt like as a person, like I was struggling to figure out where to fit in, you know? So that connection that I was able to have like through music with those people, like made me feel like I had a place in the world, you know? And I was so grateful for that. Yeah. So I I love that kind of coming of age thing because it seems like, you know, what you're hearing in that, in, in those formative years, you know, 12, 13, 14 is so powerful. And, and everything that you mentioned, um, you know, is that de- was definitely relevant during that time. Um, was there any one thing out of that? Like for example, Elliot Smith, I think about was, yeah. was just about the end of his career in, in life at yeah. that time. Sure. You know, I mean, is, is, is that something that was cognizant to you then? Were you really in tune with Elliot Smith music at that moment or what, did you visit Elliot afterwards? Um, yeah, he, he was, he was a guy that I probably, you know, there's that famous, you know, thing from the Oscars where it's like, you know, there's Celine Dion singing Titanic and then there's Elliot Smith, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, you know. And that was that, from the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack. From the Goodwill yeah. Hunting soundtrack, yeah. Um, but that moment to me, you know, it just, I don't know, it just felt especially powerful, I guess, because he wasn't, he was obviously so incredibly talented, but he wasn't like this traditionally like perfect singer or pop musician or, you know, this like manufactured, like well put together thing. Um, And, you know, I was kind of just a little too young for, you know, Kurt Cobain and, yeah. and all of that. But I did later fall in love with that music and, and absolutely loved it. But I think what was really powerful for me was just that image of this guy who could have been almost anybody it felt like. Yeah. But when you really d- discover the artistry that's happening there, I mean, it, it goes so deep and, and, and there is so much talent. You're like, okay, well, <laughs> this guy's definitely kind of one in a million. Yeah. yeah. But you know, that image. And I think, I think, you know, him just choosing to present himself that way, I think really spoke volumes to people like me who felt like, ah, but I, I, you know, I love to sing and I love to play, but like, it's not, you know, it's not this perfect thing that I'm used to seeing on, you know, in a music video or on the radio or whatever. Like, what does that mean? Can I still do it? Am I still allowed to, you know, have this dream or whatever? Um, and it, you know, it was really just artists that presented themselves in that way, you know, and Jeff Tweedy was another one. It's like, anytime I would see those guys on TV, it was like, man, what did this guy just get out of bed? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it looks like he's living the best life I've ever heard of. I could I could sleep in. I, I think that is important. This notion that, um, obviously it's high art, um, you know, both with Kurt and, and, and Jeff Tweedy yeah. and with Elliot Smith and, and it's high art. And it's not that anyone can do what they're doing, sure. but there is an element that says you can you can try. You yeah, know, try to be Aaron Lee Tashjian. Yeah, if, you know it, it gives you that that leeway, or it suggests that you could go for that. Totally. Don't know it, think it. You'll never get that little drink. Um, you know, for example, Elliot Smith, it, 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 the first time I heard Elliot Smith, it reminded me of messing around on a four track when I was first getting started. Yeah. Cause you record two vocal lines and they're, and they're both playing when you play back or totally. whatever. And it's just like, it's, 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 it's a little bit off, 
but it's that doubling that really made makes it's a it work. sound yeah it's a sound it's a unique yeah. sound yeah you know well um recently our daughter who's 13 um said something and it struck me and it ties back to this point she's she was talking about billy eilish and she's really into billy eilish you so know? good yeah so good uh, me right? too <laughs> and, and 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 i and I, i've listened with her and 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 she has some music that has some guitar in it and so i can kind of learn that and we're kind of talking about how our strong songs are constructed but then she said something where she said she records her own music in her bedroom yeah. And it took me back to kind of what you're hitting on there with Elliot mm -hmm. Smith or Kurt Cobain, this notion that, you know, there is an independent element to it. Yeah. Um, what does that mean to you as far as, and to me, that's really important because uh, it suggests to a younger generation that you don't have to be manufactured. You can do it on your own. Yeah. But what does that mean to you? I mean, it seems like you're fiercely independent in, in what you're doing. Yeah, I think, you know, artists really have the opportunity to um, really curate their music and you know their presentation um, in a way that um, they really didn't before, you know. And it's not to say that artists haven't done it previously. We have many examples that we can point to that have, but man, they sure had to go against, you know, this wave of kind of corporate, you know, uh, music basically uh, and the music business in order to accomplish that. You know, whereas nowadays, I think you know, people like Jack White have has have served as a as an example of you know the power in in kind of taking control of all of these kind of different aspects of presenting your art to people, and even right down to the method in which it's delivered to them, the product is delivered to them. You know, um, so. I think there's kind of these opportunities to consider um, in this day and age that that maybe um, just weren't as as uh, you know prevalent in in previous generations, and that really excites me because I love. I love to define each album as a as a as a snapshot of my life, mm -hmm. and that goes from the music to what I'm wearing on the album cover to what I'm performing, what I wear when I perform. At that time, like I want to be my art, like head to toe, from the moment I wake up until the the moment I go to sleep, and and then maybe have a dream that turns into a song. You know, <laughs> no, like I, I really love it that much. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm, I, there's nothing else I would rather do. In that light, you know, those kind of opportunities you know, strike me as exciting possibilities because it's just another way for me to consider the message that I'm putting out and, um, and, and to consider how an effective way to, to reach people would be in a day and age where everyone's just inundated with information at every turn. Yeah. Speaking of presenting your work, do you want to play a song? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll play you guys a new song. Nice. Um, I've been uh, I've been finishing a a record that I actually started working on about uh, gosh uh, it was it's been two Novembers <laughs> since okay. I started working on this record and uh, that's not to say that I've really spent a long time on it I've just been kind of doing it in between tours and I really love 
the idea of like Otis Redding walking into a session and being like, hey, you guys, like I wrote this song last night. Do you want to try it? It's called Dock of the Bay, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and capturing those things, like when they happen in the moment, I think we all can agree, like as writers, it's really exciting when you f- f- stumble onto something that you just, you get that feeling, you know? It's like, okay, this is, this is a, a, a happening song. And it's great to be able to record it with that same spirit in that moment and that same level of excitement. So that's kind of been the idea on this record really is to just write songs along the way and, and record the ones that really felt great. So this was one um, that, that uh, definitely uh, jumped out right away. I'd been th- trying to think of how to save this song for a really long time. Um, talk about just being an in-betweener or a person that, you know, didn't necessarily feel like they had a place to to fit in. Um, You know, this this song kind of played a huge role in um, saying a lot of that for me. And all of this stuff is totally true that's in this song, by the way. (laughs) So it's 100% true song. uh, And it's called I Got a Feminine Walk. And I'll play it for you right now. It's in the key of A major if you're clapping along out there on the (laughs) podcast. Always been a working man Playing in a rock roll band I've got a rags like a drag queen dream Coming undone at the seams I get a one look, two look, three look, four Every time I'm at the bathroom door You've seen Bowie and Bowling and Jagger too Grace Jones, Joan Jett and Tu Wong Fu I got a feminine walk I've got a feminine walk I rolled out in New York City Like Metropolitan Conway Twitty Got my smoker's cough in a Brooklyn loft Used a pseudonym, had a crush on him Well, I made things for my girl a little too hard At De Niro's hotel on her boyfriend's credit card He was a sugar daddy with dollar sign eyes I think he started Spotify I got a feminine walk I've got a feminine walk I've got legs for days I've got a million ways I've got a feminine walk Down to the guitar town to follow Tin Pan Todd around. I tried to learn his magic tricks. I mostly copped his Adderall fix. Then I fell for a boy and drag at play and dance the lonely nights away. When up walks this girl who saves my life with love that cuts like the Randall knife. I got a feminine wall. I got a feminine walk I've got legs for days I've got a million ways Ooh, I got a feminine walk
got a feminine wall. Love that cuts like a Randall knife. Yeah. Oh. Man. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. There, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it, it one level that's a blues song. Totally. And 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 then in another level, it's it's almost I, you know, don't mean to jump here, but the, the references are so deep, you know, that it's almost it's almost like lyrically a rap. Yeah, where where in rap you've got to dig in and understand what is a Randall knife? What are you talking about? Absolutely. Even Conway Twitty is a deep cut. You know, I mean, <laughs> no, for sure. no, no, no one on Top Forty Country Radio is talking about Conway Twitty. Absolutely. You know, um, I love that element of hip hop, yeah. and I think when I hear um, artists who look like me borrowing from that genre, a lot of times. I'm wishing that those were the kind of things that they were borrowing or that the production elements were the kind of things that they were borrowing. I'm like, I don't know that I need to hear another white man rapping necessarily, but I do think there's so much that people who do the kind of music that we do can glean and borrow from, you know? I think we've only really, you know, seen the tip of the iceberg as far as as that kind of stuff is concerned. So, you know, I think there's something to be learned from all kinds of music. And, and I think really what's often ends up being interesting to me is the stuff that sounds a little bit like a pickle and peanut butter sandwich. You know, it's like it might not necessarily like be the two things you think would go together, but somehow that artist is able to take those two elements and do it in a way that's interesting. I tried to learn his magic tricks. Mostly copped his Adderall fix Then I fell for a boy in drag at play And danced the lonely nights away When up walks this girl who saves my life With love that cuts like the Rambo knife I got a feminine wall I got a feminine wall Pickle and peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, from that, we, we, you know, we could we could draw a circle around a lot of things. Uh, you you referenced Elvis, Conway Twitty, Guitar Town <laughs> seems to reference, uh, you know, Steve Earle. But let's go back to Guy Clark for a minute yeah. and Randall Knife. Um, you know, does Guy Clark have have uh, something for you? I mean, is that something where you've dug into his catalog? Can you speak about Guy? Absolutely. Uh, I think the first. The first album that I ever really listened to of guys was uh, Cold Dog Soup. Mm-hmm. Um, that that record just absolutely blew me away. Um, and I, uh, one of the reasons that I decided to move to East Nashville, uh, I'd toured with a guy named Todd Snyder 
Um, who appears in the song. Yes, who also <laughs> appears in the song as Tin Pan Todd. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, he just kept saying, man, you should come down and check out East Nashville. And, uh, and so I did. And I was, I'd been living there for about a year and a half. When Todd had started this band called Hardworking Americans, which is kind of a jam. Yeah, you guys are familiar, but for anybody who doesn't know, it was a really cool jam band with Dave Schools from Widespread Panic and Dwayne Trucks, who also plays drums in Panic now, and um, and our, our brother Neil Casal yeah, yeah. on guitar, um, and the wonderful Jesse Acock on guitar as well, and and uh, and Chad uh, on on the organ and, and keys, um, but. Uh, they were recording a Guy Clark song for their album, The High Price of Inspiration. And Todd knew what a huge fan of Guy's I was. And so he sent me an email. I just got this email from Todd one morning that said, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, cancel it <laughs> and come over to Blackbird Studios in Nashville. Yeah. We're cutting a song today and I, and I want you around. And I said, okay. So I went over there and as soon as I walked in the door, I could hear his voice coming from the back of the room. <laughs> he was telling a story, you know, Guy had such an unmistakable voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just so rich with life, you know? And um, so I kind of walked in and I was like, oh man, there's Guy Clark. And, <laughs> and he was, he was kind of recording the song with them. They brought in this like incredible Martin guitar from like, you know, 2000 BC for him to play. Or, <laughs> And uh, Todd was like, man, check out this Martin guitar, which I immediately dropped. Oh God. <laughs> I was just like, oh God. And he la Todd la was laughing at me so hard. But uh, um, so they record, they did like a couple of takes of the song and it was killer. And everybody kind of went out of the room for a minute and it was just kind of me and Guy sitting in there. And uh, I, I foolishly said, uh, man, Guy, it sounds pretty good. And he kind of like, <laughs> got that look on his face. He kind of furred his brow and kind of took a deep breath and went, ah, where's the guy we usually have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, which I was like, I was like, man, to be zinged by Guy Clark is a true honor. Yeah. So I, I really, uh, I really cherished that moment. There's actually a photograph from that day somewhere of like, of everybody around Guy after the after the session out in front of Blackbird and Todd's Todd bless his heart. I mean, that guy is such a sweetheart, man. He was even wearing my t-shirt that day. <laughs> wow. Like I came yeah. over and he had my t-shirt. So I have this like really treasured memory of getting to watch Guy record. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. but more so than that, you know, the the songs and I've certainly covered a fair amount of them. Lily Hyatt and I did a version of Dublin Blues yeah. together that Third Heard Man that. put out. Yeah. And uh, he's just, you know, a lot of people called him the teacher or, you know, the master or, or you know, those kind of names. And, and I, I think it's fitting. Uh, he so many times just provided roadmaps for a way to be, you know, an independent musician um, that operated outside of the big, you know, giant music industry in a way that resonated with his audience so deeply. Yeah. 
you know, and I just really appreciate that about him, and I'm I'm still thankful for it every day. We are too. We're big fans. Yeah, he, he's he's definitely been a big influence on ours, and he was uh, the first real headliner we ever had at our festival oh, in 2011, wow. and um, it was kind of right at the end of his touring, but it was magical and and really a thing, and and I know exactly what you mean by those zingers. Yeah, he he wasn't gonna mince words, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I so I feel like um, I don't know if you just know that about him when you yeah. you either know that or you just sense that about it. Sure. And yeah. we had an encounter backstage and I didn't know he was back there and I was like running, trying to do something for the festival and I came around the corner and Guy was standing there and it was like I almost dropped all the shit I was holding. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. It's Guy Clark. I know. And then he, we had a good conversation about uh, Beard's guitars. Our, our good friend that toured with us for a long time, he builds guitars and Guy was back there playing and it was a magical moment just That's to sit backstage so and cool. talk and play. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it, you know, he, he had a mission, whether it, was in, whether it was intentional or not, to be teaching. Yeah. You know, some of it was just, he just was a force, and so he's, you're going to learn from him just totally. by being around him. But I, I think there was definitely a teaching element. Um, I've heard those stories of people yeah. playing songs for him and being, him going, make the last verse the first verse. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. fix the whole, you know, yeah. and they were just like, yeah. it's the best song I've ever written. Yeah, and I think more <laughs> and more, uh, there are these stories that come out, especially as he stopped touring and was really just at home in Nashville for mm. those last couple of years he invited people over on a yep. regular basis. Yep. You know, high-end songwriters that had cut records and yep. people that hadn't. Right. You know, and, and so that's pretty inspirational. Yeah, my buddy Brian Wright actually was one who used to play guitar in my band and is on my Karma for Cheap album. Um, you know, he was one of those guys. Yeah. In fact, he still has pieces of graph paper that he and Guy were writing lyrics on yeah. from those yeah. sessions, so... So it seems like Nashville is the kind of place where that can happen, right? Absolutely. Uh, you go over to a studio owned by Martina McBride to meet with <laughs> Todd Snyder on a day that Guy Clark is there to record a jam band inspired folk record. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's pretty amazing. You know, um, not a bad Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll, we'll talk about pre-Nashville. You know, yeah. Talk about your roots and, and kind of where you come from. Well, I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, my... I lived there until I was about 10 years old. My parents then moved to Southern California to Orange County, California, which is where I basically went to middle school. And then when I was uh, 14 years old, we moved to New Albany, Ohio, um, which is kind of where I say I'm from just because, you know, I went to high school there and all my friends are kind of still from there. And um, it it feels like going home when I go back there, um, certainly. but I, I graduated from New Albany High School and moved to New York City pretty much straight away. I don't know why I never thought of Nashville. I guess at that time I considered it probably what a lot of people considered it to be more of a country, country. town, yeah. you know? And I knew that I certainly had mu- was doing music that had those leanings, but I thought, you know, God, the stuff I'm hearing on country radio is like Rascal Flats, like that's not me, yeah. you know? Like I'll never that'll never work. So New York seemed like, you know, the next best place to go. I think largely to me, cause I was just such a like musical history buff, you know, and, and I, I certainly knew the story of Bob Dylan, you know, and all that. But I also knew the story of like, you know, Steve Goodman and John Prine going there, yeah. you know, and playing at the bitter end with, with Christopherson and getting record deals and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I thought, Somehow there's an audience for what I'm doing there. Um, and so when I moved to town, it was, it was sort of with the intention of, of just trying to figure out 
some way to do something in music, whether it was as a writer or as a, you know, I worked, I even worked at a record label. I got a job at a little record company called Nature Sounds Records that put out like weird hip hop records and like old jazz records. And like, you know, the, like we, they put out, a, we put out a Ghostface Killer record while I was there. The other guy they were trying to really hype at the time was this dude named R.A. the Rugged Man, who was a white rapper who was billed as the most dangerous rapper in the world. Oh, wow. And his song, I hope this is cool to say on your podcast, his, his, his single was called Pool Stick in Your Ass. Wow. And I had to call up radio stations. And ask if they had added it. figure out if they were going to play Pool Stick in Your Ass wow. or not. So it was a challenging gig for like a 19-year-old kid, you yeah. know, but I, I was excited to be doing anything. You were in yeah. the music, music business. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, won't you spare me all your little And interestingly enough, kind of the first thing that really uh, ended up happening for me was I met this this guy named Justin Tranter who was a singer-songwriter in the, in the New York scene and had done quite well. And he said, I'm tired of singer-songwriter music. I wanna start a rock and roll band. You know, uh, if you're interested in something like that, uh, then maybe we should hang out. And so we did, and we, we ended up starting this band together called Semi-Precious Weapons. And um, our vision for that band, uh, you know, because, um, you know, I was queer and, and Justin was uh, as well. And we sort of thought, let's uh, give every kid that feels like they're just having to hide in their bedroom right now in somewhere in Indiana, you know, something to, to, to point at and go like, that looks like me, you know? Um, I think that's one of the most powerful things we can do, honestly, as artists and as musicians is to, hopefully inspire someone to just blow us out of the water someday. Someone to beat us. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I, I'm always hoping, you know, that our generation is doing. And I, I, you know, I see kids coming along now that are really just incredible musicians and songwriters and it just fills me with hope and joy. Um, but, you know, at the time, I mean, the, there, you know, that being a, a you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of the stage presence that Justin developed had had come from, like you know, shows that we were seeing at like the drag clubs in New York and stuff like that. And so he had this really original presentation. Um, but you know, we got pelted with ice, and you know, you'd go to Pittsburgh, and you know, people would just be furious. You know, cha we got chased down the street in London, and you know, just people mad at us for what we looked like when we were walking around. Yeah, you know, not just on stage, not just yeah. even on stage, yeah. just out in life. You know, we got thrown out of a out of a record store in in England because the security guy didn't really like the look of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, God, what so, year was this? Two thousand and. Four, wow. you know, 2005. Uh, like, I, we kind of started that band in, I guess, 2000 and late 2004, early 2005. And then I left the band in 2008. But, um, you know, it was just like, 
I, you know, my first experience with any of that. I mean, we lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, which was a largely Polish neighborhood, you know, and there were a lot of like young Eastern European men who were super hopped up on vodka and just hated us yeah. and, you know, would chase us around, you know, I remember one guy chased us. He was so mad at us. He chased us backwards in his car down the street. Like he must've been doing like 30 miles an hour or something like that, like backwards, like yelling at us out the window of his car. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was thinking, man, we're supposed to be, this is New York. Like, you know, doesn't anybody remember Quentin Crisp? Like what <laughs> wow. the heck's going on here? Right, you right. know? Um, and I certainly didn't have to endure even a, a fraction of what Justin did, you know, as this as the singer of our band. So, you know, it just uh, that taught me a lot of a lot of lessons, you know. And I went, you know, really at my role in that band, I was the co-songwriter with Justin, and I was the guitar player, uh, the lead you know, guitar player. And so people kind of started to view me as like a guitar player, which was something I never really, I never thought I was a particularly good guitar player, to be honest with yeah. you. But I loved songs and I could really get inside the songs and learn the parts and kind of figure out what it was about the songs that worked and how I could fit into that. That skill set ended up being something that I just think a lot of people were looking for at that time. So I got, hugely wide ranging gigs. Uh, I was playing with my friend, Christina Train, who was signed to Blue Note at the time. Uh, uh, through that gig, I ended up playing with Mark Cohn yeah. uh, of Walking in Memphis fame. Uh, I, I left that gig and, and uh, played guitar for the New York Dolls after oh, that. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, and then uh, I joined a, a band that was signed to ATO Records called Alberta Cross. Um, and they were, uh, the singer was Swedish and the, the rest of the band was English. Um, and that was an interesting uh, group to be a part of. And through them, I met another band that we toured with during that time called Everest that Neil Young had signed to his label, Vapor Records. And I ended up then being asked to join their band, which I did uh, as a guitar player. And that was one of the greatest days of my life because it was through playing in that band that I got to meet a guy named Richard Swift, um, who unfortunately we lost uh, a year, uh, I think a year and a half ago, maybe now even. Um, but he, you know, for those of, of us who don't, uh, who Richard Swift doesn't immediately ring a bell, he was a, an extraordinarily talented songwriter, singer, uh, and musician, but also record producer, produced Nathaniel Rateliff, produced The Shins, um, played drums in the Arcs uh, with Dan Auerbach, uh, played bass in the Black Keys, uh, and then made uh, several uh, absolutely stunning s solo albums for a label called Secretly Canadian. Um, and he was based out of Cottage Grove, Oregon. His studio is still there to this day, and it's, it's maintained by... Uh, uh, a guy uh, who used to work very closely with Richard and engineered several of his records. So he knows the drill. Richard's recording style was so unique. He would send mastering engineers, for those of us out there who know the technical mumbo jumbo, he would send mastering engineers a cassette tape. Wow. Of his, he would, he would mix in Pro Tools and then bounce that down to his four track cassette 
tape and that's what he would send mastering engineers and his albums just sound absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, how he did what he did is, uh, you know, so remarkable because it broke every single rule that, you know, that you, that there is to break. And that like that experience of meeting Richard and, uh, you know, with that band Everest, who was a very beloved band to him because of the people that were in it, you know, he would share little things and, and I was really paid attention to anything he said and got way into his music and, and learned pretty much everything that I know about recording from just studying Richard. Um, so, you know, my, my background is super varied. Um, and, you know, I was always writing songs that whole time. Um, but I guess in a lot of ways, it sort of seemed to me like, well, maybe I'm just supposed to be like a guitar player or something, you know, maybe songwriting is something that I do and enjoy, but it's not ultimately what, What's gonna you know. What's going to pay your bills. Exactly. Yeah. And when I moved to Nashville, you know, it was such a song centric town and everybody that I knew was writing songs and they were, you know, the only guy that you know, I knew besides a legend like John Prine or Guy Clark or somebody like that, that was really seemed to be blowing my mind, like lyrically consistently was Todd Snyder. And then it's like, you get to East Nashville and it's a neighborhood full of people <laughs> who are just absolutely moving the ball way down the field, you know, in terms of the kind of lyrical content and, and stuff like that, that they're creating and doing it in these sort of classic song forms that I could totally relate to mm -hmm. because I loved the Beatles and I loved Creedence Clearwater Revival and Tom Petty and like all of those as well, you know? And so it, it, East Nashville to me was like super intriguing all of a sudden as a songwriter and it just, I mean, I, I remember saying to myself, like, I should write a, you know, I'd been living in Nashville for about maybe three or four months. And I remember saying to myself, I should write a song every day. I don't even know why I said that, but I just, it just dawned on me, like, you know, man, I really want to get better at this. Like these people are really inspiring me to want to try harder. And I did that. I did write a song every day and, and I, I think what happens when you do that a lot of times as a writer is like you, your, your influences are, are always apparent in some way, you know, there's no way to do something that is totally devoid of any sort of influence at all. Right. But, you know, for me, I think um, in that moment of, of just writing and the repetition of getting up and doing it every day and really like trying to get to the heart of what I was trying to say, like those things kind of started to like slide away that w to where it was sort of more of like, this really feels kind of like what I have to yeah. say, yeah. you know, and, and who I am. And, and, you know, it was kind of in that moment, um, I had been asked to do a tour with uh, John Moreland mm -hmm. and he and I were playing a gig at the five spot in Nashville, which is a, a little mm -hmm. cool neighborhood dive bar. And John was blowing up at the time, every record label in town came to see him play. And uh, I basically got a record deal because I was playing with John that night. All those people had come to see him and God bless her, Kim Bowie from New West Records said, man, somebody should sign this guy. <laughs> and they did, yeah. wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, and for me, you know, it's just been a tremendous opportunity to keep getting better and, and, uh, 
and and try to to be you know the full embodiment of whatever I can be as a songwriter you know I feel so grateful when was that when you that were... was 2015 okay wow. was was there any trepidation you know thinking back to Justin's experience where oh, someone God. a record label was saying be Aaron Lee right and then you had to you know you had to think is that what I want to do <laughs> totally yeah uh and I think you know I think that I I think one of the things that I've, I've uh, you know, maybe unconsciously did was sort of be very careful to just very slowly unfold that, mm. you know, let that flower bloom through several seasons instead of just trying to like water it and, and get it to bloom like immediately, you know, I've just sort of been really, I've tried to be really patient with myself in terms of, you know, um, allowing the the full measure of that to evolve because I think you know sometimes when you force that it can feel more confrontational than confessional you know and as much as I love punk rock music which I do <laughs> uh, I absolutely adore punk rock music um, you know I my desire as a musician to connect with an audience I think was much more about healing, you know, and healing myself really, uh, and, and relating that to an audience. So like the confrontational thing, like didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me, you know, whereas this sort of, you know, kind of, uh, gentler, kind of a whisper in the ear, kind of more approach, you know, I felt like was resonating with me personally. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, where we are just as a culture right now and as a society and, and the role that social media is playing in our lives and the news and all that. And it just seems like everybody's kind of screaming at the top of their lungs. So maybe it's kind of nice to have a few people going like, hey man, it's like, it's gonna be cool. Right. You know? <laughs> I like that. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, would you play another tune? Sure, us? absolutely. And I'm curious, I, I have this, um, we were talking about gear earlier, yeah. and you have two guitars with you. Yes. And this is, as you were saying earlier, this is a new to you guitar. Yes. Uh, the, the brown one I've, I've, has been around forever, but this one, it, this is a 2018 uh, Gibson Hummingbird uh, acoustic guitar. Um, and uh, I always wanted one, I think just because you know, so many pictures of the Beatles and, and uh, the Stones and stuff playing these, you know, and they just look so cool. Um, but uh, uh, this, this guitar has been, has been kind of cool because it's sort of, you know, I didn't, I didn't really realize having owned this nice old one, like the, the, the kind of uh, various stages like a, a, an instrument kind of goes through like to, to get it to sound how it sounds, you know? So I feel fortunate to like have been there for the entire journey <laughs> you have it. of this one. It's infancy. Yeah, no, but it's so cool to like just hear the wood kind of slowly like opening up. It's just a reminder of the value of like patience in life, I think. And you know, how something really beautiful a lot of times takes time. So um, I'll play, uh, maybe this song kind of ties into that a little bit. Um, I actually don't have a title for this one yet, so we'll, we'll call it Untitled for now. But uh, uh, I think this one's going to be on the new record as well. Yeah. 
leather jacket making that rubbing oh, rubbing sound i liked it fun? i liked it no that was good i, that was I think it. it's all part of yeah. the little texture yeah well this doesn't necessarily have to be a part of uh the the podcast per se but i love that line i taped over the master oh yeah. you know because we live in this world where uh even if you delete a file it's saved in the iCloud. Right. you know what i mean right. like yeah. we're not afraid of delete but i some people may not know what that means is like once you once you 
retape a piece of magnetic tape, you record something over it, and in your case it was silence, then it's gone. <laughs> that's it. You yeah. can't get it back. Right. There's no undo button. Indeed. Yeah, so that, that's a really beautiful, there's some a beautiful permanence in, in that line. And uh, maybe, I'm, I'm explaining it maybe because, you know, you almost have to be a musician to, to, know, totally. to know how that feels. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, but, man, that, that really hit the nail on the head. Oh, thank you. That was good. Thank you, Aaron Lee Tasha. Oh, thanks so much for having me, you guys. It's been a true pleasure. This interview was recorded on location at 30A Festival in Florida, January 2020. A big thank you to Oxford American and Sarah Lewis for partnering with us to make it happen. And a big thanks to all those hardworking folks at 30A who bring such great music to light. Learn more about Aaron Lee Taschan at AaronLeeTaschan.com. A-A-R-O-N-L-E-E-T-A-S-J-A-N.com. This episode was edited and produced by Josue Garcia at the Root Studio in Fayetteville. This season of Roots on the Road is sponsored by Tyson Family Foundation, Tito's Vodka, Adventure Subaru, and Experience Fayetteville. Fayetteville Roots is a 501c3 organization with a mission to connect community through music and food. We produce the Fayetteville Roots Festival, operate the Roots HQ, a historic venue on the Fayetteville Square. We foster support opportunities for musicians and for our music community. And lead year-round music and food programming in Northwest Arkansas and beyond. Learn more at FayettevilleRoots.org. Let it set